welcome to a special edition of NatSec Tech, marking the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks for joining us. In the 12 months since Vladimir Putin launched his attack on Ukraine, we've all seen the death, the destruction, the targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure. We've also seen technology deployed in unique and innovative ways. This is truly, as some have said, the first network war. Our guest today has seen it up close. Andrei Liskovich, Ukrainian by birth, was educated in Moscow and the U.S. He went on to become CEO of UberWorks, which linked up gig workers and jobs. When the war began, Andrei went back to Ukraine and founded the Ukraine Defense Fund, which sources, brokers, and distributes supplies to the Ukrainian Territorial Defense Forces, which consists of part-time reservists and civilian volunteers. He joins us from Kyiv. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Jean. Thanks for having me. So one year on, tell us about the situation in the mood in Kyiv, where you are. Well, uh, it's been a very long and dramatic year for the entire country. I was not here a year ago uh, when the war started. Uh, I arrived on February 27th, uh, on day three of the war. And what I saw when I arrived was enormous lines at the border trying to leave and a small trickle of people coming in back from Europe to volunteer to fight. And I myself came back to my hometown trying to find a way to help, showed up at the conscription office, and the mood was very somber. People were lined up but were lacking supplies, and this is how our initial effort was born. We were trying to help them get the necessary supplies besides the AK-47 and two magazines of ammo that they were given by the army. Since then, the mood has dramatically changed. Uh, On the civilian side, uh, the life has adapted very quickly to the new normal. People have gotten used to uh, air raid sirens and they've gotten used to periodic blackouts. Things have improved on, on the infrastructure side. If you look at the consequences of the large scale missile strikes that Russia started in September, For three or four months, many cities in Ukraine were experiencing multi-hour blackouts every day. So think nine to 18 hours a day, you would be without electricity. You would have no running water. You would have no heat. And if you live in a high rise, that's dismal. That's really not something that's pleasant to experience. Uh, In the last week or so, uh, many cities have stopped the rolling blackouts. There's now enough energy being generated. So some of the Uh, Civilian capacity uh, to generate electricity has been restored thanks to the aid from the West. And uh, for the first time in an entire year, streetlights are on, at least in some of the cities. So now when you walk after dark, you actually see the light. So that's different. Uh, I would say civilian morale is high. People are used to the new reality. And they are, of course, hoping for this to end as soon as possible. But nobody's willing to do this on the terms of Uh, Vladimir Putin's. And uh, for the entire population, it's critical to continue the fight and invest everything that uh, people have uh, at their disposal from time to resources to, you know, lots of other uh, assets that they can deploy to see this war effort succeed. I met a young woman in Munich. I just came back from the Munich Security Conference, and I met a young woman who said it has become possible in Kyiv to sometimes forget about the war. This meshes with what you're saying. Yes, it is definitely possible. Uh, It is not uncommon for me to show up at the restaurant and be turned away without a reservation. 
So it is, in fact, uh, restaurants are packed. People are living a life that's not just misery. They, they certainly uh, have adapted. Uh, and I would say that even close to the front, sometimes, I mean, short of blackouts, you, you would often, I mean, if you are outside of the artillery range, you would kind of re- see the life that's resembling normal. So have you been to the front lines and what's it like? I have to go to the front lines periodically. There's no substitute for seeing things with your own eyes and talking to the people who are uh, there. Um, I have gone to the quieter parts. I've gone to the hottest parts of the front. I've been to Bakhmut. I've been to um, Donetsk-adjacent areas. And one of the things you see is these are the places where there's no infrastructure. You have no electricity. You have no connectivity, you have no running water, etc. And people live in the ground. They dig these dugouts, dugouts and they live there for many, many months at a time. And what you don't see is that you are the constant risk of getting killed. So it's the opposite of FOMO. It's the risk that something may land on you and cause irreparable harm, which creates permanent stress. This is you being there, knowing that you are within range of the enemy fire, artillery or otherwise, and if they know exactly where you are and they think it's important to hit you, then you get hit. And that sense of constant danger is very hard to convey. It's it's very difficult to verbally describe what it's like to constantly be on edge and thinking about, have I done something wrong to expose myself? Have I taken every precaution possible? And... Um, the remarkable thing I've, see, I've seen on the front uh, was that many people have turned that fear off. They've basically decided, I'm willing to accept this risk, and now I'm going to operate as if this is a new reality. And there's not quite a few people there who, um, in some sense, don't care whether they live or die, but they want to make sure that if they do die, they have fulfilled their obligation to the country. And this is a very inspiring uh, group of people, and I see them every time I go to the front. And I really hope they don't have to die. And we are able to restore um, the territorial integrity of Ukraine with a minimal number of casualties on both sides. What impact did President Biden's visit have? Or the speeches that he and President Putin have given in the last few days? It was critical for Ukraine to hear the reinforcement of uh, commitment on part of the United States to support Ukraine as long uh, as necessary. Um, There's significant fear on part of many that uh, Putin could outlast uh, the West's resolve to see this through. And it was absolutely critical to hear this from President Biden, that he would um, continue to support Ukraine and the United States would continue to back this effort uh, without yielding to Vladimir Putin. Tell us more about the Ukraine Defense Fund. What kinds of supplies are you providing? Uh, Ukraine Defense Fund is a U.S.-based public charity that uh, raises funds in the West and uh, works on a number of initiatives that augment uh, Ukrainian capabilities, primarily in intelligence and communications areas. We focus on non-lethal aid, technologically advanced aid, from drones to satellite communications equipment to satellite imagery, to radio communication, to anti-drone equipment, all of the things that are by themselves are civilian uh, or dual use and can complement the efforts that the army is undertaking on the lethal side by giving them a better uh, insight into 
possible targets to allow that allows them to coordinate better and it allows them to share intelligence uh, and um, optimize the kill chain. Where are the donations coming from? Uh, we have a range of different private donors from small donations or people who are donating $5 at a time to larger uh, donors um, who often choose to remain anonymous out of fear that in some future, at some future date, they might face repercussions from Russia. We even have Russian citizens donating. We have a non-trivial contingent of folks who know me personally. As you know, I um, did my undergrad in Moscow. I lived there for six years, and a lot of my close friends are Russian. Uh, we, I mean, I don't see this war as uh, Russia versus Ukraine. I see it as Putin versus the West. And um, for us, it's very important to distinguish uh, Russian people from Russian government. When I was in Munich, I heard a Ukrainian official say that one of the reasons Ukraine has been able to be so resilient was that it had a pretty good cyber infrastructure before the war began. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, I would say largely yes. Uh, Ukraine, in many ways, has been ahead of Europe on various digitization initiatives. Um, if you arrive in Ukraine, you would often see people uh, use digital passports. P people have uh, an app for interfacing with the government that allows them to handle everything from taxes to uh, utility payments to ID checks, etc. So a, lo a lot of the uh, infrastructure has been in place pre-war. And if you compare it, a lot of refugees have seen this firsthand when they arrive in Germany and other places where oftentimes digitization is somewhat behind. A lot of it's still on paper, kind of hard copy uh, processes. That allowed Ukraine to not rely on local paper records, but have centralized digital records. It allowed to continue operations on the civilian side. And on the military side, uh, Ukraine has been battling cyber attacks well and trying to uh, adapt to them for the past eight years. So there's been a lot of experience since 2014. And of course, that experience came in handy. Are we talking via Starlink? Well, Starlink was certainly not in Ukraine pre-war. Starlink is something that got deployed in March. Um, right. And we should explain that this is Elon Musk's satellite array that's being used for communications and internet. Yes. So Starlink is simply a way to get Wi-Fi anywhere in the world. So you plop a terminal, turn it on, and in a few minutes you have Wi-Fi uh, that allows you to connect to the internet. So it's, it's an absolutely groundbreaking technology. It's something that allowed Ukraine to maintain communications, uh, both for civilian and military use. Despite those cyber attacks. And it, it certainly allowed Ukraine, as you know, there was a different uh, satellite vendor that Ukraine relied on prior to the war and that that was successfully attacked by the Russians. Uh, that infrastructure was damaged for almost the entire uh, spring of 2020, 2022. And Starlink, uh, became a de facto backbone of uh, a lot of the communication between uh, civilian authorities and, and even within the military. Did Ukraine have a fairly vibrant private tech center before the war? Ukraine has had a very vibrant tech sector in a sense that it was working for a lot of the Western customers. So there was a very large outsourced IT industry in Ukraine. Um, by and large, I see almost all people who have worked in the space to continue working in the space very effectively. Are they contributing to the war effort as well, helping develop, for instance, some of the apps that are being used? Uh, this has been a very interesting byproduct of a lot of the folks with a tech background joining the army. Um, 
we've spoken with a number of Western vendors of equipment and software that deployed in Ukraine. And the experience has been that Ukraine ranks number three in their list after the U.S. and Israel in sophistication of the use of their equipment and software. And the reason why that's been the case is is not the um, army pre uh, beginning of the large scale invasion, but uh, due to the fact that lots of people with tech background joined the army, they've uh, raised the bar uh, in terms of sophistication, in terms of the sophistication of the end user who can then take the product and build something on top of it. We've certainly seen it with Palantir. We've seen it with uh, various other vendors that have started to work in Ukraine. Explain, if you would, how citizens are using technology to make their voices and their knowledge known in this conflict. There's been several mechanisms in which people could participate. One, of course, is simply recording evidence of uh, destruction and war crimes and uh, brutality, simply recording, uploading, and that oftentimes required access to the internet and uh, sometimes uh, Starlinks were used to augment uh, cellular networks that had fiber connections cut, and so Starlink would be would be used as a backhaul for satellite for, for cellular towers to then distribute internet to large groups of people. One other interesting way is um, the DIA app, which is the government app for the interface between the citizen and, and the government, uh, has a way of reporting movement of enemy troops. So there have been quite a few people who've reported tips that then uh, assisted the army in identifying uh, enemy forces and then uh, counteracting their, uh, well, their plans. Uh, besides that, um, there's been, of course, uh, significant involvement among the civilians in trying to develop products for the army, including drones, including various equipment that uh, detects drones, sensors, and anti-drone electronic warfare uh, components that would jam drones. There's been probably dozens, if not hundreds, of companies in Ukraine that sprung up in the last year trying to deliver uh, products for the war effort that are themselves not weapons and not ammo. So the war has actually spurred innovation in a way. That is certainly the case. Historically, if you look at wars, they've always been catalysts for innovation. And I mean, World War II was, in, in many ways, a strong incentive for both sides to try to adapt. And any war is effectively a, an arms race of technology. Both sides are trying to get some uh, edge over the other side. And what worked yesterday may stop working today. What works today may not work tomorrow. And both sides need to constantly adapt. And in fact, a lot of the tactical uses of equipment have changed since last spring, uh, and they continue to evolve. Can you be more specific? Drones might be a good example. If you look uh, a year ago, Ukraine had significant advantage in the number of commercial Chinese DJI drones, and that helped Ukraine in better targeting uh, artillery, correcting fire, and using fewer uh, shells per target compared to the Russians. Russians have seen this. They have adapted to this. They bought large batches of these drones from China, uh, and they've probably reached parity on the quantities. Then there was a whole wave of electronic warfare capabilities where both sides were trying to deploy different methods to either disorient drones by jamming their GPS and their ability to navigate autonomously or jamming the control signal and intercept the drone, make it land when uh, the other side uh, is trying to move it or make it execute a mission. So this is just one of these threads where every couple of months the 
uh, balance of power shifts depending on how each side reacts and then different types of drones are getting deployed. It's less quadcopters now. There's more movement toward planes, um, etc. So this is an ongoing race and will continue to evolve. Do you think that Russia has been as nimble and as innovative as the Ukrainians have been? My bias is to never underestimate uh, the enemy. I went to a technical school in Moscow, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, and some of my classmates are currently on the other side. And I have firsthand knowledge of uh, the talents of these folks. They are not idiots. So I would certainly hesitate to assume that Ukraine uh, will continue to have an edge. I do think that in the first year, Ukraine has had an edge there. And um, I really hope that it continues and it will require sustained effort on our part. Uh, President Zelensky has proved himself to be something of a master of social media. Has that had a significant impact, do you think? I've seen it uh, from two vantage points. Domestically, Zelensky has managed to unify the country in in a very material way. Uh, I would say that my return to Ukraine on the 27th was in large part a response to his decision not to leave Kiev. He, um, I mean, that specific Instagram post where he showed himself and his cabinet behind him saying that we're here, we're going to stay here. There was a moment when I decided that I have to go back. Uh, And if he didn't do this, I don't know if I would have gone back. So he certainly had an enormous impact on morale and unification of the country, even though, as you probably know, his ratings were not very high right before the war. So he was able to overcome uh, these pre-existing deficiencies and really rally the country around the cause of um, defending it. I've also seen the impact he had in the West. Uh, I've been to the US and Europe four or five times since the war began in my uh, work uh, that that involves brokering transactions between um, different sources of aid, including government sources of aid uh, and Ukrainian end users. And I've seen uh, Zelensky play a very significant role in rallying the support outside of the country and and, uh, serving as an example, serving serving as a role model for a lot of the folks who have not seen inspirational behavior from their leaders in a long time. Do you think that his ability to use social media technology has been effective in pushing back on Russian misinformation and disinformation? I sure hope so, but we shouldn't forget that Russians are very sophisticated at uh, what they do. Um, I don't know if you've seen Putin's speech yesterday. It was very calculated. It was well calibrated at certain um, groups uh, within the West who are looking for reinforcement of talking points that he delivered to them. And so they they will certainly deliver these messages uh, piecemeal. I've seen them all over Twitter and, and I follow probably close to 2,000 accounts, many of whom are on the fringes of the left and right and uh, they are quite sophisticated what they do. Uh, I surely hope that um, Zelensky will continue to push back, uh, but uh, I would never underestimate Russians' ability to persevere and um, evolve. They are not going to be static. They're going to be evolving. And we need to be prepared not for what's what they're doing today, but for what they're going to be doing tomorrow. So we read that Ukraine is running low on ammunition, that tanks are coming, but they aren't there yet, that Ukraine would like F-16s, but we don't know if they're going to get them or not. Do you think that 
the use of technology and the tech skills that Ukrainians have is making up a bit for the lack of some conventional arms, or is that overstating the impact? No, it's in fact the major difference between this war and the previous wars. Um, I'm not a military person, so my military expertise is absolutely superficial. Uh, however, if you look at the stylized facts, the, 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 if you look at the Soviet norms that uh, precede this war and kind of come from the Soviet era, um, the norm for target, so if you look at the artillery and how much ammo it's supposed to spend per target, the Soviet norm was about 60 shells per target. That means that they basically pick a quadrant where they think the target is, and then they just hit it like as a grid, so aerial bombardment. Uh, once you have a drone that can see where the first shot landed, and you can then correct fire to try to hit the target with better precision, the use of ammo goes down by an order of magnitude. Like Ukrainians are spending maybe up to five shots per target. And it's not just ammo. If you spend 10 times, if you need to do 10 times fewer shots, that means that your artillery system is exposed 10x less time. So there's a lot less opportunity for the enemy to do counter-battery fire and hit your artillery system. And similarly, the people who are manning the system are less exposed and they're also a scarce resource. It takes a lot of time to train them. And uh, the number of artillery systems that the West has provided uh, is approximately, the U.S. has provided about 230 uh, artillery systems. So it's not a very large number. And uh, each one of them is scarce. And this ability to make the most out of its resource is critical. So this non-lethal thread, this non-lethal innovation that started to be introduced in this war has been absolutely essential. If the West provided the same amount of lethal equipment, but Ukraine had no drones, we would probably not have it by now at all. It would all be gone. What technology does Ukraine need that it hasn't got? It's an excellent question. And in some sense, it should be downstream from military strategy, which I am not an expert in. Um, I uh, My view is this. So this is based on a lot of conversations with folks at the general staff, but not uh, classified. Uh, the biggest constraint is heavy equipment. So Ukraine does need a lot more tanks, infantry, fighting vehicles, and artillery, these three components. So they need several hundred, per Zaluzhny's article in The Economist in December, in order to be able to push back at least to the February 23rd line. So this is not sufficient to do full liberation to 2013 borders, but this is something that would allow Ukraine to push back to February 23rd. Ukraine has the ability to purchase non-lethal aid. So this is mostly a money problem. So if you look at drones and you know, satellite communications equipment, satellite imagery, intelligence, software, a lot of those are not uh, questions of foreign aid. This is a question of money. It's possible to buy. And Ukraine is working on this. And uh, Ukraine also needs to adopt it properly so that the information is shared. There's lots of problems there. There's lots of room for improvement. But what West can do is to significantly scale uh, shipment of lethal, shipments of lethal aid. My view is that the constraints on lethal aid are political rather than monetary in nature. Of course, the Biden administration is uh, balancing a lot of considerations, the risks of escalation, the risk of China's involvement. You've seen um, Secretary uh, of State Blinken alluded uh, to the threat that China may decide to provide lethal aid to Russia, and they're certainly trying not to get into that one-upsmanship with China. So I know that they're balancing a lot of other considerations, but from uh, the vantage point of Ukrainians, Ukraine does not need, does not have anywhere close to 
the, the number of tanks, infantry, fighting vehicles, and artillery systems that it needs to get to the February 23rd line. So you just mentioned satellite imagery, which is something you and I haven't really discussed. Um, that's really been important, hasn't it? And it's come largely from the private sector. I would say that it has been important. Yes, it has come from the private sector by and large, and that's that's incredible. The fact that um, now the private companies have the capabilities to deliver the cutting edge uh, at each of in each of these fields, from communication to imagery to a lot of the smaller assets, uh, is is incredible. This is a qualitative difference with previous worlds of the 20th century, where the government would be in control of a lot of this technology. Um, however, Ukraine has not yet taken full advantage of these. Uh, capabilities. Uh, I think Ukraine can do a lot more in sharing the data with the right um, decision makers that, in the field. And I think Ukraine can probably 10x the impact of these uh, satellite images compared to what it has done so far because of the internal organizational decisions about how to protect this data from distribution internally. Of course, everyone is paranoid that the data may be leaked and there might be uh, you know, Snowden types within the ranks. And so they are taking a very conservative view on how the data should be shared. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of room for improvement there. And I hope to see a full impact of that technology in 2023. What do you see as the big technology lessons that we've learned from the war in Ukraine? That's an excellent question. Uh, I think we will need to revise the answer in a year, but uh, the way, uh, here's where things stand right now. Lesson number one is the best in-class drone is Chinese-made, and there's no close second. The best drone is the one you can go to Best Buy and purchase off the shelf, DJI Mavic 3, that is the workhorse of the front line. And it costs, I mean, you can buy this in a basic configuration for $1,500 a piece, there's nothing even close. The best US-made drone is worse on every spec and costs four or five times more. So the first lesson is this incredible dependency on Chinese drones. And they have, in fact, been incredible. And uh, both sides are using them. And China is certainly capitalizing on supplying both sides. Uh, the second lesson has been in satellite communications. As you know, Starlink has been used in uh, military communications, and it has had two properties that radio comms have not had. One, it's nearly impossible to detect, so locating the terminal has been very difficult, while Russians do have extensive capabilities in detecting radios. And the second, they've been nearly impossible to jam. It's not physically impossible, but it's much more difficult than uh, it is to... Uh, jam a radio station that uh, Ukraine relied on heavily as a main way of communication. So uh, Starlink has been a breakthrough. Arguably, Starlink is the most important non-lethal product uh, Ukraine has used. And it's an asymmetric capability vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Russia does not have access to it. Ukraine does. While with drones, Russia does have access to the same DJI drones that Ukraine does. So that's the second lesson. The third lesson is a lot depends on how, how this information is shared and uh, used in a kill chain. If it's collected and not shared, it doesn't deliver value. And a lot of the sharing is driven by the old Soviet mentality of let's collect but not share because somebody, may, somebody who is not authorized may see it. And I think there is a way to safeguard this information without compromising it or partitioning it in such a way that would allow 
uh, effective use without, while limiting uh, the risk of exposure. And so this is where Ukraine has a lot of room to improve uh, in, and I, I really hope that this will occur, this will happen in 2023. And maybe the final lesson is that civilians can do an enormous amount. A lot of the work that um, the army is doing requires no military expertise. A lot of the work is project management, uh, ability to get into an ambiguous domain and understand the problems that just solve them on the fly. So this, this ability to inject bandwidth into the military execution is something that civilians have done really well. There's been an incredible volunteer movement all across Ukraine. And these folks are helping the army with areas of weakness where the army cannot, through their very hierarchical, very chain of command way of talking to the vendors and everyone else, they've been able to plug these holes and diagonally communicate across organizations and get things done. So civilians can do an enormous amount by simply plugging in brains into the system. You simply need basic competence, diligence. You don't need military domain expertise to do a lot of good. What do you think this war will look like in 12 months? This is the question I hate. I cannot predict uh, what's going to happen. Certainly when I was coming back to Ukraine, I expected that everything would be over in a few days. You remember the forecasts were very dire and everyone was wrong. If you look at the forecasts of military outcomes, I'm not aware of a single analyst who has gotten the flow of this entire war correctly. Uh, I think the future is not predetermined. I think what it's much more productive to try to change the outcome than to try to predict it. So in some sense, the best way to predict the outcome is to try to change it in the direction in which you would like it to go. And Ukraine has a lot to do. And I think the West can do certainly uh, a number of very smart things to change the outcome and not create a precedent for the future that would down the line have major ripple effects and possibly devastating impact on nuclear proliferation if Ukraine is allowed to lose territory through armed means and uh, under the threat of uh, nuclear blackmail after Ukraine gave up its nukes in the early 90s. Andre, I know you're not a military guy, but you have been in the thick of things in Ukraine and you've watched this incredible innovation on the part of your countrymen to fight. And I'm wondering if that gives you any sense of how future wars are going to be fought? The future is very hard to predict. I strongly believe it's not set. It's not predetermined. However, if there are going to be people involved in these wars, um, if it's not all drones versus drones, um, you know, Star Wars style, episode one, uh, it is very likely that a lot will depend on morale. Uh, a lot will depend on the will to fight rather than just the tools of war. And this is something that will certainly remain a major factor as long as people are part of it. Technology is evolving very rapidly. Uh, there are several books I've read since the war started that opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of the superiority that the DoD has had historically in legacy systems may in fact not be carrying over to the future era, where instead of large aircraft carriers, you may have swarm of small drones that may take it down at very low cost. And China has been clearly preparing for uh, these types of conflicts where they would fight them asymmetrically. So I think uh, it's very important that as we look forward to the future, we 
anticipate not the current threats, but the future threats. As you know, wars uh, are often um, byproduct of preparation to the previous war. And it's, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. But we should really pay attention to what's happening in the commercial space, because now it is the main source of technology that's now getting transferred to the military, not the other way around. It is uh, no longer exclusively the military developing something and then down the line sharing some of it with the civilians. It's oftentimes the opposite now. We've seen it in communications. We've seen it in intelligence. And uh, I think this is where the DoD needs to pay a lot of attention to the emerging trends and prepare for the future conflicts, not for the past ones. What do you see as the future for Ukraine? Ukraine is at the crossroads. As you know, Ukraine has battled corruption for a long time, uh, since before the war. And if that fight is won, Ukraine has a very bright future get, uh, ahead of it. Uh, if the fight is not won, Ukraine will stay in the group of unsuccessful countries and uh, will be in a perpetual state of unrealized human potential. So besides the military conflict that's unfolding, I think Ukraine will need to pay an incredible amount of attention to reforming itself from within and using the war as a catalyst for structural reform and ensuring that it starts to approach Europe and hopefully the European Union will provide accountability as well as aid in forcing these institutional changes that would allow Ukraine to become a successful, uh, flourishing country with safe and secure borders. Are you encouraged by the steps in that direction that have been taken by President Zelensky? I'm certainly happy that they have been taken. I think more steps will be necessary down the road. And the problem is systemic and it requires a systemic solution. A few uh, people departing will not be enough in that fight. And it's not up to me to advise on what's the right timing for those. But this is the issue that's critical to resolve. And this is the difference between Ukraine becoming a prosperous state and Ukraine staying among the poorest nations in the uh, European continent. So it's fundamental to what Ukraine will be as the current military battle, yes. in your view. And even if the military battle is successful, if corruption problem is not resolved, it will deflate and defeat the aspirations of all those who fought this war and who sacrificed for this war. Andrei Liskovich, thanks so much for joining us today. Andrei is founder of the Ukraine Defense Fund. Thank you. You've been listening to a special edition of NatSec Tech. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>